0: podcast like trying to find a miniature ninja in the middle of a rave, with Megan Argo, Melanie John, Jen Gupta, Libby Jones, Evan Keen, Ian McDonald, and Mark Herber. The Jobcast, June 2011, Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to the Jobcast. I'm Jen, and joining me in the studio today are Mark, Melanie, and Megan. Hello, everyone. Hello. I've got the M people in here. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I've been waiting to make that joke for like a week.
1: Well, where do you fit in?
0: I'm an enigma. I should formally explain the um, witty comment that was the Metro newspaper's description of trying to find neutrinos. Trying to find a miniature ninja in the middle of a rave.
1: That's That's so (laughs) confusing.
0: Yeah, because ninjas are dressed in black and everyone at a rave is dressed in really bright colours, so I don't think it would really work. Uh, I don't know if they're dressed in bright colours. Everyone at raves is dressed in fluorescent colours. That's yeah. what I imagine. Glow paint and glow sticks. So. I've never met a miniature ninja. I'm a miniature ninja. <laughs> <laughs> You're <not> that miniature. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, in the show this time, we have the very last of our interviews from the National Astronomy Meeting. So we find out about comets and asteroids and neutrinos. And we also have Ian MacDonald answering your questions. But first, before all of that, I talked to Lee Fletcher a couple of times about recent results from Cassini. I'm here with Dr. Lee Fletcher from um, Oxford University, and he works on Saturn. So could you tell us a bit about your work?
2: Sure thing. Um, I, I first got into working with uh, Saturn's weather systems and the sort of physics and chemistry that you see on these planets by, uh, by working with the Cassini spacecraft. Cassini has been up there since 2004 and has been returning some spectacular images just recently. Uh, back in December of last year, um, both amateur observers and the Cassini spacecraft reported that they were starting to see some very strange goings on in Saturn's northern hemisphere. Now, Saturn has extremely long seasons, okay? they last about seven and a half years. Back in 2009, the rings of Saturn were edge on as viewed from planet Earth and from the Sun. That means that you've got uh, spring and autumn in the south and the northern hemisphere respectively. So what's going on now is that uh, Saturn's rings are slowly tilting and opening up so you can see them if you look through a, through a telescope. And that means it's becoming springtime and summertime conditions in the Northern Hemisphere. Now the change in the amount of uh, energy in the sunlight that you start to deposit in the atmosphere means that you can start um, changing the atmospheric structure slightly. And those changes can lead to large... Um, Weather events, large weather phenomena taking place. And so, what Cassini has seen recently is that uh, a gigantic storm has erupted in Saturn's northern hemisphere. And it's been tracked both from ground based telescopes, from the Cassini spacecraft, and most importantly, by amateur observers from around the world.
0: So, when you see a storm on Saturn, what's it actually look like?
2: Well, in this case, um, Saturn's atmosphere is normally serene. If you've looked through, through a telescope, you can see that it's got this wonderful yellow ochre sort of colour. What the storm looks like is a gigantic region of extremely bright white cloud material. And I think that these are are fresh ices that are being brought up from below. Now, when I say ice, I'm not just talking about water ice that you find in your freezer. This is a combination, possibly, of water ice, but also of things like ammonia ice. And it's ammonia gas, the condensation of ammonia gas, which forms the main cloud decks that you see on both Jupiter and Saturn. So what we're saying is that this storm is dredging material from deep within Saturn's atmosphere and bringing it up to the level at which it starts to reflect sunlight. And that's why we see this this white structure. Now it starts in a single spot. It starts in a spot up in Saturn's northern spring latitude. But Saturn has got these these jet streams, these flows that move to the east and the west with rather high velocities. Those jet streams can shear the initial um, bright white spot out... So it actually forms what looks like a a tail downstream. And that tail is now, it it started in December last year, and it's now April 2011. And the tail is spread all of the way around Saturn. And it's sheared out to, basically looks like a new bright white stripe on Saturn with a lot of structure in there. And it's readily visible through amateur telescopes.
0: And with storms on Saturn, I mean i might be going a bit crazy here would there be like lightning and thunder associated with this would you be able to see anything like that
2: you're you're spot on um you lightning and thunder are were always um expected to be seen on saturn Uh, of course it's rather different conditions to what you see on earth during a thunderstorm Uh, the scales are very different because you've got a mostly hydrogen helium atmosphere with clouds that can extend uh, hundreds of kilometers upwards and downwards uh but back in 2009, in a different storm, I mean, it's not the same storm we're talking about here, but in smaller convective features, uh, there were observations by Cassini of lightning flashes. So if you like super Saturn <laughs> lightning taking place, uh, we know that this happens on Jupiter. The Galileo spacecraft back in the uh, late 90s and early 2000s also spotted lightning On Jupiter, Uh, It's anybody's guess as to what this (laughs) might sound like if you were to hear a super Jupiter lightning bolt strike somewhere in the atmosphere. But I expect that uh, this storm that we're currently seeing on Saturn is going to be an immense source of, of, of lightning strikes within Saturn's atmosphere.
0: And observing these storms on Saturn, can you find out more about the actual atmospheric physics? How detailed can we go in what we understand about it now?
2: Yeah, so... When you're talking about atmospheric physics, you're talking about the way in which uh, fluids flow from one location to another and what drives the motion of the atmosphere. Um, if you look at Saturn and Jupiter, what you are mainly seeing is one level. You're seeing the um, the cloud tops of this atmosphere. And all the really interesting physics is taking place beneath those clouds, and it's driving what the uh, the clouds will look like higher up. And so by looking at how the atmosphere is evolving, with time and changing on hourly and daily and maybe even monthly timescales you can start to get a handle on the forces which are driving the atmospheric flow and the, the, in particular these storms are driven by something we call instabilities so you might have a flow that is relatively stable over a long period of time but for some reason some small perturbation it only needs to be tiny can then make a self-reinforcing structure and that structure can grow and evolve over the over the time to, uh, to generate these spectacular features that we're seeing.
0: And can we go back to the amateur involvement with this? So we have quite a lot of amateur astronomers as our listeners. How do they get involved?
2: You know, amateurs are, are key to this process, and there's a very good reason for that. If I want to use a giant telescope here on Earth as a professional, I have to write a long proposal, I have to justify the science, I have to justify the technical side of things. Uh, that goes off to a panel of experts. They take their time in trying to decide whether it's worth doing or not. Whereas the amateurs, they're out in their back garden night after night, I don't know, avoiding the misses or not wanting to watch (laughs) EastEnders or something like that. And they're observing the way in which these atmospheres change on a nightly basis. And that's an incredibly useful data set for us professionals. Now, there are websites around the world that allow you to upload uh, JPEG or various different forms of, of images to the website. And that is a very valuable resource for professionals who can then go and peer back through all of those data sets to see, um, see what's changing over the course of time. Uh, one in particular that I use quite a lot is called PVOL. If you just type that into Google, I think it's called the Planetary Virtual Observatory. Mm-hmm and that's somewhere that people regularly upload data to and you can go and look at both the Jupiter and, and Saturn sections on there. And also the British Astronomical Association has got both Jupiter and Saturn sections and the heads of those sections, and you can find their emails just by going to the BAA website, uh, are quite ready and quite happy to accept emails from amateurs providing these images. I have to say that the amateur community, uh, Saturn's uh, storm is one great example of all of this. But back in 2009, a really talented amateur guy called Anthony Wesley, who was based down in Australia, uh, he observed Jupiter every time it's available in the sky. And uh, he noticed a, a dark scar on the southern hemisphere of Jupiter. And it turned out, um, he contacted myself and a few others uh, in the professional community. We then followed up with ground-based observatories here, And we discovered that uh, an asteroid strike had occurred within the atmosphere of Jupiter. And it was was his discovery. This amateur guy, who was just really dedicated to the cause, uh, provided us with all the information we needed. And he gets all the credit for making that discovery. It was quite astounding.
0: Have you ever seen an impact on Saturn, or did it just happen on Jupiter?
2: Uh, we've never seen an impact on Saturn. There is indirect evidence that uh, they, they have certainly occurred in the past. I mean, you only have to look at the cratering records on, on the moons themselves to know that there is, uh, there's a lot of um, rapidly evolving features out there. And, of course, the rings themselves could be evidence of some sort of catastrophic disruption of a, of a moon or satellite or something like that. We've never seen uh, any impact flashes or impact scars on Saturn, which, of course, we've seen on Jupiter now, on, uh, on four separate occasions, with Schumacher-Levy 9, a giant comet back in 1994, with the asteroid strike uh, in 2009, and then last summer in 2010, vid- um, amateurs who were using webcams to, to video Jupiter spotted optical flashes that lasted maybe two or three seconds or so, and we believe those were, if you like, shooting stars within the atmosphere of Jupiter. So um, we've seen a lot on Jupiter. We haven't seen so much taking place on Saturn.
0: We've been talking just about optical observations of Saturn. If you go to other wavelengths, do you find out more about the atmosphere?
2: Absolutely. And in fact, um, over in Oxford, most of my time is spent looking at infrared wavelengths. So these are wavelengths that are longer than the visible uh, reflected sunlight and are actually sensitive to the heat energy from the planet. So we're not talking about reflected sunlight here we're talking about the thermal emission from the atmosphere itself and that's sensitive to a range of things the main thing is the temperature structure as you go from deep within the atmosphere to high up in the what we call the stratosphere high up and to the composition, so the distribution of the various gases like methane, like ammonia, and various hydrocarbons, and also to uh, the distribution of clouds and hazes and aerosols and things. Now, of course, with all those different pieces of the puzzle adding together, it can make for quite complicated interpretation of the spectra that we see. And so we have a a computer model that's written in in Fortran code, if you you remember that (laughs) far back, and um, that basically takes those input spectra that we've measured from telescopes and from cassini and it turns them on the head and it works out what must the atmosphere be made of and what must the vertical structure of the atmosphere be to produce the spectrum that we measure it's called inversion you basically take the, the output measurements and you figure out what must what it must be like to generate those measurements in the first place. And that's how we do things like measure the temperature, measure the distribution of a gas, measure the distribution of a cloud. So, yeah, longer wavelengths, extremely useful to us.
0: Have you got any results that you can share with us?
2: Wow, watch this space, (laughs) because this is something that I'm actively working on with colleagues around the world, guys over in the United States, people over in Spain, in France, and here in the UK. We're we're sort of spearheading a project to try and figure out... um, Specifically for Saturn's storm, what on earth is going on and uh, what's, um, how do we explain why it's happening now, why it's happening at this particular location and what effects will this storm have on Saturn's atmosphere over the, the coming years. So uh, we do have results and uh, I'm working very hard on making sure I've got the right answers before we, uh, before we go any further.
0: Well thank you very much for talking to us today and good luck with everything.
2: Absolute pleasure, thank you.
0: Well, Lee, thank you for joining us again on the JobCast. Got you via Skype, so I hope that this all works. Um, so at the end of that interview, you, at NAM, you talked about um, these new results that you had, but you couldn't tell us yet because they weren't published. And since Nam, those results have been published. So could you tell
2: us a little bit about what you found out? That's right. It's been quite an exciting time when we've been looking at Saturn uh, using various different wavelengths of light sensitive to uh, to various aspects of Saturn's thermal distribution. So by that I mean how the temperature varies from place to place, both with height and horizontally with latitude and longitude. Now by doing that, by, uh, by looking at thermal infrared wavelengths, we were able to get uh, to see a new side of the storm, something that uh, people had not been able to observe before, simply because we didn't have the right sort of technology to do so. So if you like, this has been quite a lucky break for those of us planetary scientists working at these these wavelengths. So For the first time ever, we've been able to look at the thermal effects of one of these gigantic storm systems. And as I mentioned when we were back at Nam, we were in for a few surprises. And the main one was that uh, this storm we know to be a a bubbling tropospheric disturbance, so something that's taking place deep down within the planet's weather layer and manifesting itself as those incredible systems of of bright, light and dark clouds down at, uh, these are levels we call the troposphere. Now, we thought that storms and turbulence related to the storms would be relegated down to these deep atmospheric pressures. It turns out we were quite wrong about that. In fact, the storms had such a huge effect on Saturn's atmosphere that it's perturbed temperatures, gases and aerosols really high up in the region that we call Saturn's stratosphere. So that was the brand new thing that we saw by looking at, uh, at this new data.
0: So, when you talk about being um, high up and low down, how do you measure? Do you measure heights? Can you take them from a surface on Saturn, or do you take them from the top? How do you do that?
2: Obviously, it's a little bit complicated because we um, we don't have a surface on Saturn that we can use as the as the baseline level, if you like. So, what we tend to do is we talk about the distances above and below the topmost cloud layer. Now, those topmost clouds we believe are crystals of ammonia ice. That's never been proven. Um, completely, but that's the, uh, that's the best hypothesis for what we are right now. And so when I talk about vertical distances, I'm talking about regions above and below that level. Now, where this storm first uh, was generated, where it first uh, activated, if you like, we believe is maybe two or three hundred kilometers deeper down than those visible cloud decks. Now, that's down in a region where water begins to condense in Saturn's atmosphere. And so it's down at that water cloud deck that this uh, this storm may have erupted in the first instance. So the storm then rises material upwards and a giant uh, buoyant plume, if you like, that brings it up to the altitude of those ammonia clouds, and that's where we first detect it and first are able to, to see it. And so, as I mentioned before, we believe that the storm should be localised within that weather layer between the water cloud and the ammonia cloud. So we were surprised then when you had effects happening high in the stratosphere, maybe another two or 300 kilometres further up than that. And just to give you an idea of how far 300 kilometres is, the space station orbits the Earth at about that altitude above the ground. Wow. So it would be like a storm here on Earth affecting altitudes as high up as the space station is orbiting. So we're talking something that's quite beyond uh, human scale and human experience.
0: So, your new results, um, does this completely revolutionise our understanding of the atmosphere in Saturn?
2: I think it shows that there are a lot of questions that we still have to answer about these atmospheres. We, we really can't get a grip right now on why this storm has occurred at this particular point in the seasonal cycle. Now, Saturn has these uh, seasons, that, or it has a year that lasts for 30 Earth years. And so, a season on Saturn is about seven and a half years long. Um, we know that storms occur on Saturn at various different times and they're mostly clustered around the summer solstice when the northern hemisphere is pointed towards the sun and it's the, the balmiest summertime conditions up there. But we don't really have an explanation for why they happen during the spring and summer. You know, Why don't they happen during the winter, for example, or, or during the, the autumn or the fall? Uh, the best explanation that we have so far is that down in that water cloud, where all these turbulent, uh, t- this turbulent activity is taking place, that sort of activity is happening very frequently. In fact, all of the time throughout Saturn's year, it's just that during the springtime and the summertime, the conditions within the atmosphere are just right to allow these storms to penetrate much higher up than normal, to altitudes where we can actually detect them both from the Earth and from the Cassini spacecraft. So uh, we're starting to get some hypotheses together, but I think this storm is really showing us that there's a lot that we still need to learn about how Saturn's atmosphere um, evolves with time and what's going on deep down within the atmosphere at layers that we we can't really see, that water cloud layer being particularly interesting.
0: So the data you've got is from Cassini. How, How much longer has Cassini got in its lifetime? Will you be able to observe Saturn for quite a lot of its year?
2: Well, Cassini, um, we expect to go on till 2017. Uh, by that point, it'll have been up in orbit around uh, Saturn since 2004, so it will be a grand old spacecraft by then. <laughs> uh, what they have to do is, um, because we have a lot of very interesting satellites in the Saturn system, namely places like Enceladus and Titan, we can't just leave Cassini up there as a dead spacecraft once the fuel runs out to continue orbiting the gas giant. We have to do something called a, a deorbit in order to plunge Cassini into the cloud tops of Saturn and effectively remove the spacecraft um, from the system. Uh, so that is scheduled in the current baseline of the mission for uh, late the latter half of 2017, by which point Saturn will be at its, uh, its northern summer solstice. So we'll have seen from the, the winter solstice back in 2002 or so, all the way through to the summer solstice, which is about half of the Saturn year. Now, if as you can imagine, that's an amazing data set for a planetary scientist to have, to be able to observe a planet for half of a Saturnian year. So we, we're learning a lot, but um, it would be nice if we had it there um, <laughs> for the long, long timescales. Of course, what we are now learning how to do is how to do a lot of these measurements from the ground using giant observatories. And In fact, the paper that we've written uses both Cassini data and data from the Very Large Telescope out in Chile, now, that VRT data, the beauty of that is that you get a, a full image of Saturn in one snapshot, whereas Cassini, what it has to do is build up the images very slowly over the course of time. Um, so Vizier, or the, the instrument called Vizier on the Very Large Telescope, can give us a similar amount of data in just a single snapshot. But of course, there is a big problem with doing ground-based work, and that is that you have the, the turbulent atmosphere to look through to actually make, uh, make your measurements through. And that makes it rather difficult to provide accurate calibrations. And sometimes with variations of seeing, you don't quite get the resolution that you might like uh, on the planet. So there's pros and cons to using spacecraft versus using ground-based observatories. And of course, in the future, when Cassini is uh, is gone and when Cassini is just a memory, we'll only have the ground-based facilities to, uh, to work with.
0: And so your paper came out um, last month, I think. And since then, is there anything else exciting that's been happening on Saturn?
2: Well, this storm that uh, actually started back in December 2010 has continued to, uh, to rage up there in Saturn's atmosphere. Now, I mentioned before that they had a huge effect on the high altitudes, the stratosphere of Saturn. In fact, it created something that we call a stratospheric beacon. This was a large region of warm air within Saturn's stratosphere that we thought was related to, um, to air that is sinking downwards, being squeezed, and basically heating up because of that adiabatic compression. Now, what we didn't expect was for that feature to be quite so long-lived. And in fact, it has now circled the planet uh, entirely. It moved westwards with all the zonal flows in Saturn's atmosphere, and it intensified since we wrote the paper. Now, I have to tell you that the, 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 the scale of that intensification was quite unprecedented, and we have now temperatures that are nearly 60 to 70 degrees higher within these stratospheric features than in the neighbouring, quiet, quiescent atmosphere. So there's something quite amazing going on that is invisible if you look in reflected sunlight, invisible wavelengths. But in the thermal infrared, you can see that there's something happening that we've never seen before and uh, we don't fully understand yet. So we've been applying for lots more time on places like the VLT, and we're also having the Cassini spacecraft continuing to monitor these features to try and understand what's going to happen to them over the coming months. But that storm is, uh, is still going strong.
0: And just finally, you, so you said that you were uh, making kind of temperature maps of the um, atmosphere. Do you translate those into kind of images that we can go and have a look at?
2: Well, with the Very Large Telescope, the images that are taken are taken through a filter that is actually sensitive to Saturn's temperature field. And so those images are available to any, for anybody to look at. They're in the paper that was, uh, was published online uh, a couple of weeks ago now. And the images are available on the website run by the VLT and from the, uh, the, the Saturn Cassini website run by the Jet Propulsion Lab out in the States. So, yes, there are plenty available for you to go and have a look at.
0: We'll link to those in the show notes. OK. Well, Lee, thank you very much for joining us again and good luck with everything in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jen.
3: And now we have Libby talking to Robert Frank about neutrinos and ice Cube.
4: Hello, and thank you for joining me on the Dugcast. Robert Frank from Daisy Institute in Germany, and you work on neutrino astronomy and a really cool new detector called IceCube. Can you tell me a bit about it, please?
5: Right. So, IceCube is a recently finished neutrino detector located at the geographic South Pole, deep in the ice. So, the the actual detector is about one and a half, between one and a half and two and a half kilometers deep in the ice. It consists of about five thousand photomultipliers, which are very sensitive light detectors. That detect the Cherenkov light mainly from muons that go through the detector. So, first of all, what is Cherenkov light? So, Cherenkov light happens when a, uh, a relativistic particle travels through some medium like water, ice, or glass, and it's faster than the local speed of light. It's kind of the supersonic boom you get from an airplane. It's about the same thing.
4: And muons, are they particles with mass or are they
5: neutrinos? or...? So the muon is, uh, you can see it as a heavy electron, it's about 200 times uh, heavier than the electron and it's unstable, it decays, so it, it, you don't find it in your natural environment but it, it's produced in, in high energy interactions of particles. For example, if a neutrino interacts with an atomic nucleus. How
4: high energy are we talking? Large Hadron Collider energies are talking higher energies than that?
5: Um, So the energies we are looking for in Ice Cube are actually much higher than the uh, Large Hadron. So what is produced in the Large Hadron Collider? We start with TEVs, which is actually comparable to Large Hadron Collider, but that's what we almost call low energy. And then you go up to PEVs, which is about a thousand times higher. And we go even higher to EEV energies, which is yet another factor of 1,000.
4: Wow, so they're super, super high energies.
5: Right. That's like the highest energy particles that have ever been detected, for example, from cosmic rays. That's the energy range we're looking for.
4: So what sort of sources
5: produce these really high-energy particles? Well, no one knows. That's, that's the big question, the, the miracle of cosmic ray physics. We detect these particles coming from... All directions in the sky, and we have a lot of models that predict where they could be produced, but there's no no, no real hint um, of what these sources actually are. So some people have uh, have ideas about so-called active galactic nuclei, which are galaxies which have a massive black hole in their center a lot bigger than the black hole in the ce- than in the center of uh, our own Milky Way and these black holes eat matter and, and put out a lot of energy and this could be channeled into these particles
4: and these muon particles these come from all these really high energy sources and they travel I assume very very long distances do they retain all the energy
5: and how do we how does the earth and ice cube detect them so the the main advantage of, of IceCube with looking at neutrinos is that neutrinos travel through the universe without any interaction, they, basically no interaction. So you have no no problem seeing very far in the universe. But that's, of course, at the same time a problem if you want to detect them because suddenly you want them to interact. So IceCube has to be very big. It's a cubic kilometer of, of ice. And um, very few of these neutrinos actually interact, and that's the big complication of IceCube. And you have to find these neutrinos in the big background of muon interactions you get from muons that are produced in the atmosphere. The ratio is about, for every neutrino you want to find, there are about a million atmospheric muons. So these are muons that are produced in the atmosphere above the detector, and you have to find this one in a million, and that's so... uh, computational challenge and that's where most of the work of the scientists actually goes into
4: so in terms of numbers of neutrinos i heard somewhere if you look at your thumb which is about a square centimeter there's about 10 to the 6 neutrinos going through your thumb in a minute is that about the right type of numbers or are we talking even more or less
5: so, in a minute time, it's several billion of neutrinos going through your sun, but these are neutrinos coming from the sun, so these are very low-energy neutrinos, not the target of ice cube. And the interesting thing is, I mean, it sounds very scary, thinking about billions of neutrinos going through your body, not just your thumb, but in your whole lifetime, about one of these will interact with an atom in your body. So that might illustrate a bit how complicated it is, it is to detect these particles.
4: And these high-energy neutrinos—how do they compare in terms of numbers to the neutrinos coming through the sun?
5: They are vastly less. So, uh, actually, we, as we haven't measured them yet, we are still looking for them. They must be; uh, they, their number must be much lower than the solar neutrinos because these sources are so much further away. If you imagine the sun being put at a distance of a, of a galaxy, you. Would not detect many neutrinos.
4: And I know that our listeners have listened to an interview about the SNOW detector, which is quite a small detector. And we talked about the different flavors of neutrinos, the three different flavors. Can IceCube detect these three sources?
5: Yes, IceCube can detect uh, the muon, uh, the electron, and the tau neutrino, and they make very different signatures in the detector. So the muon neutrino um, makes these tracks because you get a muon out of it and uh, the The track, as you might imagine, enables you to find the direction of the neutrino, because the muon that it's produced basically points in the same direction where the neutrino comes from. So you can look for sources in the sky. If you get an electron-neutrino interaction, you get a cascade, which is like an explosion of light. It's like a ball of light um, going through the detector. I have a very hard time finding out where that electron neutrino came from but you can measure the energy very well because the whole thing is contained in your detector and the tau is a very funny thing because it can make a lot of different uh, interactions um, because you at one point produce the tau which gives you kind of this ball of light and then the tau has a very short lifetime because it's even heavier than the muon and it decays and depending on if you see that in your detector or if it happens outside of Ice Cube, you get another explosion. So we call these uh, events double bang, or if you see only one part, it's uh, it's a lollipop. or They are funny names for, for these patterns.
4: Is it different sources that produce these different neutrinos, or do they all come from the same type of source?
5: No, they all come from the same kind of source because there's a thing uh, called neutrino oscillations. So no matter... So there are different models on on what kinds of neutrinos are produced, but on their way to the Earth, they oscillate, and you expect similar numbers for all three different uh, flavours of neutrinos.
4: IceCube has been operating now for, is it less than a year?
5: No, IceCube actually operated now for more than five years because we gradually built the detector. You can only work at the South Pole during the summer, which is the winter here in the Northern Hemisphere. So you only have a couple of weeks where conditions are such that you can operate your drills and people can actually work outside for a long time. But after each year, we operated this partially completed detector and took really valid and, and very good science data and we are analyzing that data and... Now IceCube is complete since a couple of months and we're going to now take data with a complete detector. But we already know how to analyse it, so it's just one more step for us. And has
4: IceCube detected any of the high-energy events or has it just detected background neutrinos or neutrinos from the sun?
5: So we haven't really unambiguously identified an astrophysical uh, neutrino. So we can set limits. We know now that certain sources are fainter than a certain limit and that slowly starts to con- put constraints on on some models. Theorists tell us what uh, where the neutrinos in, are produced and what number and slowly ice cube measurements start to constrain these models. So theorists have to become more creative.
4: Now the detector has been operating fully, how many events do you expect to sort of detect per
5: year? So the from the muon neutrinos we um, detect about 100,000 per year now. But at the same time where these uh, these atmospheric muons are produced, you also get atmospheric neutrinos. So also the atmosphere is a source of high-energy neutrinos. And uh, these are these 100,000, which we detect each year. And then you have this basically uniform... um, background of, of atmospheric neutrinos and you have to look through those and try to see if there is a cosmic source behind it. It's a bit like looking into you know in, in, a, uh, in a car in a car light and try to see if, if there's a lamp in front of the car light. Wow so, so you've got some serious methods going on there to try and extract these astronomical
4: sources. Um, if a source like supernova 1987a goes off uh, which was detected in other neutrino events in well, 1987. Um, would an uh, ice cube be able to detect these events?
5: Yes, definitely. It's um, These are, again, very low-energy neutrinos compared to the usual neutrinos we, we detect in ice cube, but they would lead to a an increase in the noise rate. So these, these photomultipliers we have in the ice, they have a, a noise rate like... If you put your t- your TV on and, and, and a, on a channel where there is no no signal from a TV station, you have this noise on your TV, and it's kind of the same thing happening in PMT. And but if if the supernova, this nearby supernova, would go off, you get a lot of very low energy interactions all across the ice, and this would lead to an increase in the noise rate over the whole detector. So this would be such a clear signal. And the interesting thing is that because of the way we read out of the detector. And because of the huge size of the detector, you could look at the time evolution of that signal. You could see when the neutrinos are produced in respect to the time when the supernova goes off. So it would give you a much more detailed view than we had on 1987A, for example. So that's what everyone's hoping for.
4: So have you got this link to other telescopes so they can all suddenly twist their heads towards and any sources that would go off?
5: So in, in the supernova framework, there's this so-called SNU, Supernova Early Warning System, which is a collection of, of, of neutrino detectors, and IceCube is, of course, a part of it. But we also have a couple of other programs where we send alerts from IceCube to, to other detectors. For example, we have a program which is called the Optical Follow-Up, which uh, sends alerts for, we're looking for uh, multiplets in very short times uh, of neutrinos, which might be coming from uh, supernova explosions, faraway supernova explosions in, in other galaxies, or from gamma-ray bursts um, that are very faraway sources, but on very high energy. And if we detect one of these multiplets, we send a trigger to a network of optical telescopes, which is called ROTSE, and they look at that patch of the sky and try to find the afterglow of that event.
4: And while you've also been looking at point sources, so sources like gamma-ray bursts, can the detections of the cross the whole sky tell you anything or oh, interesting science.
5: So there are searches for the so-called diffuse flux, where you it, it might be that an individual source is too weak to be detected as a point source, but the whole sum of all the point sources in the sky lead to what, what people call the diffuse flux. But that's a really, so we're looking for it, but it's a really complicated search because you have to understand your background very well. You have to understand your atmospheric neutrino spectrum to such a degree that you could... At, at the high energy and really see the difference between astrophysical and, and the atmospheric flux. It's a really complicated but very worthwhile search.
4: So you have just been visiting the ISQ detector in the South Pole. Would you want to tell us a bit about your life out there for a few weeks, few months?
5: So I've been there, down there now in January 2011 for about two weeks as a visiting scientist and I, I was mainly doing software work there but it's really interesting to to be there and live there and really see the detector because otherwise if you sit at a computer the whole day it feels kind of virtual but being down there at minus 40 degrees Celsius is, is a very nice experience
4: Could you feel the cold? Was it, is it cold as it looks when everyone's wrapped up really warm or we quite happy? I heard you tell me before about the sauna
5: you had So... It's cold and uh, it, you, you get all the clothes, so all the, all the really ext- it's called extreme cold weather gear is provided for you and you really need that. But, um, but for me, actually, the, the, the coldest parts were always my hands. That's because if, if you're doing physical work outside, you cannot really wear the very thick gloves and, and if you get your hands out, it gets cold very fast. And otherwise, I had imagined it to be colder So I had never experienced minus 40 degrees Celsius before. I had imagined it to be colder, but it's quite, uh, you can manage for some time. And especially, yeah, you, you talked about the sauna, especially it's very easy to go out of the sauna in, you know, almost naked and stand outside for a couple of minutes. So that's what people usually do. They go to the sauna and then they go to the South Pole, which is about 20 meters behind the South Pole station. And you take a picture and it looks very scary, but actually you do not feel the cold in the first minutes out of the sauna.
4: And when you were there, were you visiting all the different detectors of IceCube around the site and playing with their
5: technology? So, the, the as I said, IceCube is very deep in the ice, so you cannot actually see this, but there is a surface component which is called IceTop, and we did some work on these tanks. It's, uh, it's water, well, frozen water, so ice tanks at the, top, at the top, which do cosmic ray physics, which also have these photomultipliers. And uh, we, did, uh, we did work with those, and I did work with the computers at the South Pole, which do the data analysis.
4: Brilliant. Thank you very much. It sounds like an awesome time you had out there, and very exciting physics. Cheers. Cheers.
6: Thanks for that, Libby. Next, Evan spoke to Ewan Williams about comets and asteroids.
7: OK, I'm here at the National Astronomy Meeting in beautiful Clendidno, Wales, and I'm here with Profe- Professor Ewan Williams from Queen Mary University in London. And Professor Williams is an expert in comets and asteroids. And perhaps I could start by asking you, what is a comet and what is an asteroid?
8: I think traditionally it's certainly one of the view that comets are very distinguishable because you can see a tail from them. Asteroids did not show any tail or any formation like that. And from that you can extend your thought in saying tails form through ices melting and subliming as the comet approaches the sun. And then this throws out gas. Gas carries out the dust, and you get the very spectacular tails on the comets. Asteroids appear not to show any such activity. Are nearer the sun; they're mostly all inside Jupiter, and so we're thought to have formed there out of basically non-icy material, rocks and ice. So one is inside what people these days talk about, the snow line. Asteroids would form inside the snow line, comets would form outside, and perturbations have brought the comets in so we can see some of them in the inner solar system now.
7: OK, perhaps uh, I can just ask you then, uh, just
8: to clarify what the snow line is. I think the snow line is a word which is now coming as we start worrying about habitable zones around other planetary systems. The snow line is thought to indicate the line where... Ice could form, so you need to be far away out of the snow or ice can exist in solid form and inside that mm-hmm. it doesn't exist in solid form and it's therefore much harder to find. It's very hard to trap gas, it's easy to trap solids.
7: Okay, so we have a rather neat picture that once we get beyond a certain distance from the sun, it's cold and we have these snowballs, and these are comets, and inside that, We have rocky objects, and these are asteroids. But I think, as you described in your talk here at the meeting today, it mightn't be as simple as all that.
8: No, obviously comets always come in. We see comets close to the Earth. But again, until recently, certainly the thought was very simply that um, even though they formed outside, perturbations from anything really, in the end, Jupiter... Brings a lot of them in, so that they now pass close to the Earth, and we can see the spectacular tail. Um, most of them still live, and we still believe that this is the case. Most comets still live in the outer reaches of the solar system for most of their lives, either in the Kuiper Belt or in the so-called Cloud, which is even further out. Occasionally, come in. So, yeah, um, that's basically the picture. But they've always done that. But. Those comets that come into the solar system until recently certainly were all thoughts, well, we're all on elongated orbits, so you could see they originated out there somewhere, um, but they've just been pulled in, and for a very short part of their lives, they're inside the so called snow line uh, when we see them with these spectacular tails, etc. What's changed is that over the last few years, we've certainly discovered by we, I mean the astronomical community at large, have discovered four comets that are at present on near-circular orbits. And not only are they on near-circular orbits, they're on near-circular orbits, essentially inside the asteroid belt. So they're circulating the Sun, just like the asteroids between Mars and Jupiter.
7: Okay, so there are now comets
8: masquerading as asteroids in the asteroid belt. So it begs the question of, how can you tell the difference just slightly correct you there in the sense that these four comets are not masquerading as asteroids. They appear like comets. They do form tails. So they are behaving like comets. They're not masquerading. They're they're being in the wrong place. They shouldn't be there, but they are there. Um, There are also, indeed, one suspects, comets masquerading as, as asteroids. Comets can't eject material forever. And if they're losing all the ices, then slowly they stop becoming a snowball. And one may well argue... That generally does argue that what's going to happen is that the larger dust particles get left behind, and slowly you will become a dormant or a dead comet, and that may well look like an asteroid. But these four comets are not uh, not those; these are still active comets going on circular orbits.
7: Okay. So you mentioned that a comet can stop ejecting, and then when it's a dead comet, we might be fooled into thinking it's an asteroid. But a few months ago, there was a famous uh, story of an asteroid that seemed to have a tail,
8: a comet-like tail, but in fact is an asteroid. So perhaps you can explain that. This is a very exciting discovery that at first we simply thought we'd discovered a fifth main belt comet, um, because to all extent and purposes, it looked very similar to those. It was found first by having a long tail. Uh, as you discover a comet, this object was found having a very long, very clear tail. And indeed, it was thought we have now found a fifth comet. People then started saying it doesn't quite look like quite like in other cometary tails. Uh, there's very li- almost no evidence of gas. This was really just a dust tail with no evidence of gas. And nice pictures were obtained using the Hubble telescope, which then showed the parent object just outside the tail, with also a very interesting shape and uh, morphology to the tail. But the object was there. This object is clearly an asteroid. We just have a dust tail. The tail is not driven by gas being ejected from, from the parent. It, uh, so it must be ejected by some other mechanism. And the only obvious mechanism must be a collision. If you have collision, of course, again, you, you throw off lots of dust as a result of the collision. Um, but the fact we can see it now, we can see the tail, not only we see the tail now, we see the tail very, very close to the parent's body now, such the collision must be very very recent and in reality we are looking at the evidence of a collision within the last five years between some object and an asteroid.
7: Okay so these have collided in the last five years I sometimes have a picture of a solar system that formed a long time ago billions of years ago and is now somewhat calm and settled and there's less collisions it's still quite violent and still some collisions going on.
8: I think, yeah, that has been a developing theme over the last few years, that, as you say, if you go back 50 years and every feel the solar system, uh, is quiescent, it's not doing anything interesting at all, everybody's going round and round in circles. One identified chaos as being an important part of the solar system, and the more we look at things, the more we realise yeah, that if it is... Far from a quiet, dead place. Orbits are moving, collisions are taking place. As soon as you start changing orbits, collisions will inevitably result in that because we have elongated orbits crossing circular orbits and everything else, and orbits change their locality. Various forms of chaos have been identified and also the resonances play a big part in the evolution of the solar system. And we're finding lots of evidence of that all over the place, not just in, in, in the asteroid comet connection. We had another paper almost following in mind this morning, where the same thing appeared to be taking place almost in in the moons of Saturn, where there was
7: evidence there. So Saturn itself seems to be acting like a miniature solar system
8: in its vicinity? Yes, I think that's certainly the case, and in particular that there are also evidence of, of collisions and new dust, both being seen circulating and also settling on some of, the pla- some of the small satellites. So you mentioned that in recent
7: times our views have changed and you mentioned that the Hubble Space Telescope was able to help you solve this mystery of the comet-like asteroid. And we all know how powerful the Hubble Space Telescope has been for distant objects, for cosmology. But you're studying objects in our backyard, so it must be very powerful. In fact, you can actually go to these objects and take samples and is it correct that you have
8: pieces of these in labs? It's certainly true. All space missions, almost all space missions, wherever they go to, need to go through the asteroid belts to start with. Um, and therefore, inevitably, with a little planning, you can get close flyby of several asteroids. And we, uh, Rosetta went past Lucisia. Um, a few a few months ago by now which is the largest asteroid by far so far that we've gone past and interesting, we heard this morning again evidence that there was some some outgassing or some, not quite outgassing some material sort of kept uh, around the features, and the density there was slightly higher uh, than around the background we've also had flybys of comets, not quite as numerous obviously, <coughs> of asteroids and as you say there's been one return of samples which it's all, it's all much more accessible than galaxies and, uh, and so on and so forth you know. indeed very much more accessible when you can actually hold
7: it yeah. so you mentioned that uh, space missions will have to go through the asteroid belt that begs the question of is that dangerous are we going to get struck by these objects
8: uh, uh, what's emerging obviously as soon as the solar system stops in this nice quiet place and collisions take place we find that objects are on elongated orbits. We now know there's a very large population of certainly several hundred, if not several thousand, bodies whose orbits bring them within 1.3 astronomical units of the Earth, which are called near Earth asteroids or near Earth objects. And those all potentially can hit the Earth. Now, just to put everybody's mind at rest, none of them at present are thought to be on a collision course, but we have over the last several years built lots of new telescopes, or new detectors on telescopes at least, that are capable of trying to find all asteroids and I think we've now been successful that more or less all asteroids down to one kilometre in size are essentially known. However, those less than one kilometre they're still a large unknown population um, and whereas they may not be large enough t- um, to cause global extinction like what was thought to happen for the dinosaurs. A 200-metre object, was, which was probably larger than what caused huge devastation in Siberia 100 years ago in Tunguska, um, the frequency of those colliding with the Earth is probably once every um, several hundred years. Um, uh, and so we do need continue with the search for near-Earth asteroids to move the limits down from a kilometre which I think we've achieved down to 100 metres, indeed down to 10 metres uh, to feel safe and panstars will of course help quite a lot um, in, that, in that job
7: Ok, so we're currently monitoring everything that's a kilometre or bigger, so we can feel somewhat confident that we're not going to have an extinction event without knowing about it first and as we're monitoring it it makes me think how long would we know in advance
8: of such an impact? Would we have a week to run? I, I, I think, like I'm saying, for the for the kilometre ish size objects um, where the orbits are all fairly well known, we're talking about a very long, very long term. By that I mean several years, if not several tens of years. Um, enough time, in general, for lots of mitigating. Um, Methodologies to come into play, and you can even argue for six months or so which one is the best before you sort of employ it. Um, On the other hand, the smaller they are, the the harder they are to follow, the harder they are to detect, and the more likely they are to surprise us by going from different directions. And if you only have, if if all I'm I'm saying is wrong, and a kilometer. A kilometre-sized object is found to be going to hit us in the next sort of ten hours or something. There really is nothing you can do other you go and have a nice drink and enjoy the last sunset or something. But, uh, uh, and listen to the last episode of the Jodcast. Or, or whatever, yes. Uh, the smaller ones, but basically, they don't cause glo- global catastrophes. They may wipe out a city, which would be pretty bad for that city, and, and one would, of course, prefer not to do it. But you don't need to deflect it so far so that you hit, say, the sea instead of the city. Um, And so, again, the smaller they are, the easier they are to deflect. So it's good good news and bad news on the small ones, but they may be harder to detect and harder to follow because there's more of them as well, and it's much harder to compute all of them. But at the same time, the damage they do is less, and how to deflect them becomes much, much easier because you don't need such great force to deflect a small thing as you do a large thing.
7: Okay, we'll close being optimistic then. Um, We're monitoring all the big things and we're pushing down the limits on what we're we're keeping an eye on and the ones that we can't track won't cause too much damage, we hope. We hope. (laughs) Okay, with that, I'll say thank you Professor Williams for telling us all about comets and asteroids. It's been a pleasure having you on the JotCast. Thanks very much, it's been a pleasure talking to you.
1: Thanks Evan. And now it's time for that bit of the show we can't fit in anywhere else. The odds and ends.
0: So who's going first?
6: I'll go first. Um, So this month there was a nice bright supernova in the whirlpool galaxy, M51. Ooh. Yeah, it's kind of cool because M51 is actually fairly close. So it's a, um, an object you can see with a... Uh, quite a small telescope, actually, but the supernova you probably need a reasonable size telescope to see. It. It's got to about magnitude fourteen in the optical, so you would need a, a ten inch to see it from somewhere decent. So when when
3: did it happen? When 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 when?
6: <laughs> it, um, it was first. It, well, it was discovered by a group called the Palomar Transient Factory. Um, Transient Factory. Yeah. They, what they do is they, <laughs> they have a telescope that basically scans the sky quite regularly, looking at galaxies, trying to find supernovae for statistical projects. So they want, want to find as many as you can, so you can do lots of statistics on them. Um, and they found this one in very early in June. Um, but because it's such a bright galaxy that's um observed so regularly by amateurs anyway, um uh, when people started looking back through the images that they take and they found it as far back as the thirty first of May. So this this thing exploded. Um, in our time frame anyway, somewhere between the 30th and the 31st of May. But actually millions of years ago. Actually millions of years ago. Um, M51, the Whirlpool Galaxy, is um, 7 megaparsecs away, so that's about 23 million light years. So the light you're seeing from it now left the galaxy 23 million years ago. That's and, a long and time.
1: And that's close, it? is it? <laughs>
6: that's close, yes. <laughs> Believe it or not, that on cosmological scales, that is really close.
1: So how long will people be able to see the supernova for?
6: Well, if you've got a reasonable sized telescope, it'll be worth going out and having a look uh, over the next few weeks. Uh, it is fading um, gradually. Um, but we've been looking for it in the radio as well. So the Merlin network of telescopes who operate here at Jodrell Bank, um, we've been having a look at it um, with that in the radio. So um, we're currently, well, I'm obviously not at the moment because I'm recording the podcast. <laughs> but um, one of my colleagues is busily um, looking through the data at the moment. So hopefully we'll get a, a radio detection out of that as well. It has been detected in the radio by other groups as well. So, so this is the upgraded e-Merlin This is, network. yes. Yeah, pretty much every telescope on the planet that's capable of it and is interesting is currently pointing out the supernova as people can get time on them so everybody's well, dead
0: interested it must be in the northern sky if
6: it is in the northern is, sky yeah. yeah it's a declination of about plus 50 degrees so yeah you can see it from the northern hemisphere but you you won't see it from much of the southern hemisphere
3: that's very cool
6: it is it's awesome you don't get them that bright that close very often so this is why everybody's dead excited about it you can tell lots of things about the physics of supernovae by looking at close ones so it's exciting mm.
3: I have also something about a, a close by explosion but a uh, different scale. It's uh <laughs> <laughs> there was a a big solar flare like a, an ejection of uh energy and matter in the sun which is only 8 light <laughs> minutes away
0: <laughs> in stereo.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and it happened on June 7th and they made the NASA made a really cool video uh that you can find on the NASA website and um, I'll put the link on the show notes but
0: the best video that I saw of this was by um, a guy who on YouTube is called Stand Up Maths and he compared this um, solar eruption to the destruction of Alderaan in Star Wars and it's a very nice little video and concludes that this um, solar flare is 2.2 kilo Alderaans of awesome (laughs) 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 Which I think, this is a new scale that I'm going to be using all the time in AGM.
1: We did need that to be put into context, I think
0: so. Yeah, so I'll link to that one in the show notes as well.
1: Another pretty picture, but slightly more serene. If you've been looking at the NASA astronomy picture of the day in the last week or so, you might have seen uh, an absolutely stunning picture of the International Space Station with the Space Shuttle Endeavour docked into it and the Earth in the background. Is a very rare shot because, of course, normally there'd be nothing around to take that photo. But in this case, there was a Russian Soyuz supply ship that was just leaving the ISS and managed to snap Endeavour and the space station together, which begs the question, did the Soyuz dock at the same time as the shuttle?
0: So I think that the Soyuz was already there when the shuttle got up because Endeavour was delayed for a while. So I think... They weren't meant to both be there, and the Soyuz definitely, they don't like anything leaving the ISS while something else is docked. Um, I seem to remember that it was quite confusing because the astronauts on the different missions were working on different time zones.
1: Surely it's always universal time in space. I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) The shuttle actually looks very big compared to the ISS. I thought it was smaller than that, and it also kind of looks like it's swinging around on the end of the space station to me, like a fairground ride.
0: It looks really cool.
1: The astronaut who took it is Paolo Nespoli, and you can actually follow him on Twitter. He's Astro AstroPaolo. Uh, I think he's been tweeting from space for the 159 days that he was up there, but uh, now he's finally back on solid ground.
0: Yeah, I, had, I checked his Twitter feed earlier, and it's all in Italian, so I have no idea what he's saying. <laughs> <laughs> We've been speaking about photos quite a bit in this odds and ends section, so it's worth noting that the Astronomy Photographer of the Year, the competition that's run by the Greenwich Observatory, um, entry is now open for that and it closes in just under a month's time on the 13th of July. So if you have any photos that you want to enter for that, I think you join their Flickr group and then they pick photos out of that. Unfortunately, we're suffering from the lack of David Alt in the show, so we don't have any contrived segues to get into Ask an Astronomer. But here is Ian MacDonald answering your questions from Libby Jones.
4: Our first question is from Gareth Toy, who asked via email, when are we going to have our first interstellar telescope? I'm sure we could get one there quicker than it has taken Voyager to reach the edge of the solar system. Maybe 10 years,
9: perhaps? I think we're a long way off building an interstellar telescope, certainly a lot longer than 10 years. There's a few big advantages to putting telescopes in space. Firstly, it removes the distortion from the Earth's atmosphere. that's what caused the stars to twinkle. And that's where the Hubble Space Telescope has been able to produce such wonderful pictures. But it also allows us to look at wavelengths that which the Earth's atmosphere absorbs, like X-rays or infrared. Another big thing we can do is connect several smaller telescopes together to make one big virtual telescope. The bigger the telescope, the smaller the detail you can see. We call these virtual telescopes interferometers. And it's a technique we already use with radio telescopes like those at Jodrell Bank. Interferometers have become so large that we've run out of Earth to put them on. We've had to make radio telescopes in orbits to make our interferometers even bigger. But making a telescope bigger means it's hard to link together. You need a big grid of telescopes you want to build an interferometer, otherwise you only end up being sensitive to things of a particular size or orientation. So unless you're going to send up a load of telescopes out in different directions at different speeds, building an interstellar interferometer is pretty much out. But what about the single interstellar telescope? Well, we can get things out beyond the solar system faster than Voyager. If you look at the New Horizons probe, which is now en route to Pluto, it's taken about nine years to get there. But at this rate, it would still take 48,000 years even to reach nearest stars. You then have the problem of how do you get the data back? Probes like Voyager and New Horizons require the biggest telescopes in NASA's deep space network to listen out for the distant signals. If you go much further than they are now, even the biggest telescopes won't hear them. Besides technical problems, assuming you're not going to build an interferometer, there's not really that much point in sending a telescope out into interstellar space anyway. Once you're out of the Earth's atmosphere, you've removed most of the distortion you can. And once you leave the solar system, space looks pretty much the same, black with shiny dots. The thing that most astronomers find interesting, are so far away that even sending a telescope out of the solar system won't really bring you that much closer to them, so there's not really much point. So I think sending telescopes into interstellar space isn't going to happen anytime soon. The problems and costs are just too great, we wouldn't get a whole lot more for it. Probes like the Voyagers are really only out there because they were going in that direction anyway. So if we're not going to build an interstellar space telescope, what we might see instead are observatories shielded from all the horrible pollution that people cause. Radio astronomers hate things like TV and radio signals and mobile phones and wireless routers. Their signals drown out the faint signals we're trying to receive from space. If you look at Jodrell Bank, even the microwave is stuck in a big cage to stop it from leaking radiation. One plan that we could implement is, say, put a telescope on the far side of the moon where it's shielded from the Earth. Now, this comes with its own sorts of problems, and it is not likely to happen for many years yet. But we can dream. So
4: the key difference here is the difference between a space probe and looking close in on astronomical objects and a space telescope. Telescopes want to look stuff far away anyway, and there's no benefit. But a space probe, putting that towards the edge of the solar system, like Voyager, that does have its benefits, I guess.
9: Yeah, um, sending a telescope that's looking at distant stars out of the solar system isn't going to bring you closer to them, at least not appreciably. But if you're going to get 50, 100, a million times closer to one of the planets that you're trying to look at, or an asteroid or a comet, or something like that, then yes, it's going to be hugely advantageous.
4: Awesome. I I can't do the really like the idea of a telescope on the far side of the moon, though.
9: It's kind of cool, isn't it? (laughs)
4: little moon base. Our second question comes from Geoffrey who's aged nine, so possibly our youngest, ask an astronomer question yet. And he wants to know, what is the closest star to the sun? Is it Alpha Centauri or Proxima Centauri?
9: It's a very good question, and depending on who you talk to, some people will say, after the sun, the closest star is Alpha Centauri, some people will say Proxima Centauri. I think the reason behind this is because Alpha Centauri, 4.3 light-years away, is the closest star you can actually see in the night sky with your naked eye. Unfortunately, we can't see it in the UK, but if you're lucky enough to live in the Southern Hemisphere, you can see it from there. Alpha Centauri is actually two stars, bizarrely enough, Alpha Centauri A and B, which go around each other in an orbit of about 80 years. Because they're so close together, you can't see them with the naked eye separately, but a small telescope will show them as two separate stars. Alpha Centauri A is very much like the Sun, whereas Alpha Centauri B is a bit smaller and a bit redder. So what about Proxima Centauri? Well, it's uh, a little closer than Alpha Centauri, at 4.2 light-years. It's quite a small star. It's only a seventh of the radius of the Sun. and It shines with a rather feeble 40 millionths of the light of Alpha Centauri. In fact, it's so faint that we can't see it without a telescope, despite its proximity. Now, Proxima Centauri is probably going around Alpha Centauri as well, which is why it sometimes also gets called Alpha Centauri C. If that's right, that would mean that all three stars are part of one system, and all three orbit each other. Sometimes Alpha Centauri A will be the closest, sometimes B will be the closest, sometimes C will be. Now all of this means that oh, poor old Proxima Centauri usually gets forgotten about. But for the next 20,000 years or so, Proxima Centauri will be the closest star to the Sun. At least the closest one that we know of. Now here's a little bit of cutting edge science you might like. A few weeks ago astronomers found several planets floating freely in space, planets not going around the star. Now, they're a little bit too small to be called stars in their own right, and they probably look a bit like Jupiter. But if the calculations are right, that may mean there's more of these free-floating planets out there than there are stars. and That might mean there's one closer to the Sun than even Proxima Centauri. The thing is, it would shine so feebly that we couldn't see it even if we put our eye to the world's biggest telescope. They glow faintly in the infrared still, though, which means that special satellites with infrared telescopes on board might see them. One of these satellites, called WISE, is looking at the moment, and another called Gaia is being built. But unless one of these satellites finds a free-floating planet nearer to us, you can tell anyone who wants to know that the Sun's the closest star, Proxima is the second, Alpha Centauri A and B are the next two further away than that.
4: Wow. Triple system and orbiting, so that's going to change... Was it 20,000 years?
9: 20,000 years.
4: 20,000 years, so for the next 20,000 years, Proxima Centauri is the nearest star. Finally, our last question comes from Jod the Oak, and this is, I think, following on from a discussion we had a few Jodcasts ago about the supermoon possibly causing an earthquake in Japan, and how we were saying that's not really true. But the question is, if the moon pulls the Earth's crust and causes tides to flow, why couldn't the moon cause an earthquake?
9: We've heard previously about the earthquakes uh, supposedly being caused by phases of the lunar cycle or the super close moon or something like that. And some seismologists claim they'd found evidence of this back in the 1980s, but more accurate studies recently have found no link between the Moon and earthquakes at all. I guess the best way to think about this is think how the Moon could cause earthquakes. The Moon's most noticeable effect on the Earth is through tides. The Moon pulls at the Earth once every 24 hours and 50 minutes. If you're next to the sea, you might see this creating one or two tides a day, depending on where you are on Earth. But the gravitational pull of the Moon on the Earth's surface is only very small. It's only a few millionths of the Earth's gravity. If we compare this to the forces acting on fault lines, even the smallest earthquake you can feel pulls at you with a force thousands of times bigger than this. Let's compare the pull of the Moon to the forces acting on the fault lines. If you take the smallest earthquake you can feel, it pulls you with a few thousandths of the Earth's gravity. That means the forces pushing the rocks past each other are about a thousand times stronger than the gravitational pull of the Moon. If you take a bigger earthquake, like the one that's happened recently in Japan, these forces can be a few million times stronger. So, unless the puny tug from the moon is going to be the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back, it's not going to have that much of an effect. But just to check, I had a look at the aftershocks that happened in New Zealand and Japan after the recent earthquakes there. Between the two earthquakes, there's about 8,600 aftershocks. I compared their strength and the time that happened against the Earth's rotation, tidal periods, lunar cycle, everything else I could think of and there just isn't any trend with any of them. So if tidal forces were going to cause earthquakes, what we'd actually need is a much bigger moon. Maybe a few thousand times bigger. Something like Jupiter, for example. It's about 26,000 times the mass of the moon, and pulls so strongly on its own moons that tidal friction heats up their insides. This heating causes volcanoes in Jupiter's closest moon, Io, and earthquakes in its second closest moon, Europa. Saturn and Neptune also heat up the moons in the same way, and you can see geysers coming off Enceladus and Triton, their two moons. So in summary, the moon doesn't cause earthquakes because although the tides it creates are very obvious to us, the force it generates is just too puny to act the scales that matter for earthquakes. I think that rather really puts into perspective the strength of the forces beneath your feet.
4: Wow, I'm just impressed the length you went to go to to answer that question for Joe to the Oak.
9: I'm nothing but dedicated. <laughs>
4: that is some serious dedication going on. And thank you we're advancing everyone's questions. I'd also like to thank Gareth, Geoffrey and Joe to the Oak for asking these questions. If anyone else wants to get in touch, you can do so by ask an astronomer on the website.
0: Thanks for that, Libby and Ian. And now we get on to the feedback section of the show.
1: On the forum, Starbug is publishing a book of short stories later in the year, and five of those have some astronomy in, and she's told us that the Jodcast has given her a lot. So we're really glad if we were able to contribute to those in some
0: way. And hope that she'll send us a copy. (laughs) Of course we'll pay for it. (laughs)
1: I'd love to hear what an astronomy story involving the Jodcast would be like.
0: I don't. It's going to be going to
1: be interesting. And thanks also to M C J H N, which I don't pronounce, which I don't know how to pronounce because there are no vowels in it. And Mark C, who both enjoyed uh, the last edition of the Jodcast. That's good to know. Thank you.
0: Over on Twitter, uh, Andy Pickwell said, Gah, the June Jogcast is out. I haven't listened to May or May Extra yet. Damn you time and your infernal but inevitable passing. So sorry, Andy, that we haven't managed to slow down time yet.
3: We're working on it. We're
0: working on it. We can maybe send you close to a black hole or something. We'll find a way. We'll find (laughs) a way. Um, Greasy Pie wants to know if Her Majesty the Queen actually listens into the Jogcast following on from our um, intro outro by the Astronomer Royal. We guess not.
1: Well, Martin Rees almost said she did. Not quite, but I'm <laughs> sure he can put in a good word.
6: Hopefully. She might use it to put the corgis to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe
0: we could get her to do an intro outro. Think
1: they're called <laughs> Carnus Major and Carnus Minor. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, no. And for once, I've actually gone through and tried to find everyone who has retweeted us. So thank you to Lea Moussiere. Virtual Astrogeophile, C. Susie's EPS grads, Reesy Pi, North Staff's A. S. ABC Star Stuff, Stuart Gary, and Physics Chris. And also we had Follow Fridays from Neil BW and Andy Dykes. So I hope that's everyone. Twitter's really stupid with letting you see who's retweeted you, so I'm sorry if you retweeted us as soon as the show came out because I probably missed you. And on Facebook,
3: uh, thanks to David James White who posted up a video of uh, the ATCA, the Australian uh, Telescope Compact Array. And I've uh, been there. It's really
6: cool. It's actually made by an astronomer who was observing at the Compact Array at the time, a guy called Emma Lank. So go check it
0: out. It's really cool. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so via the website at www.jogcast.net.
1: On the forum, at forum.jogcast.net.
3: On Twitter, at twitter.com slash On Facebook, at jogcast.net slash Facebook. On YouTube, at youtube.com slash On Flickr, at flickr.com slash groups slash
0: and that brings us to the end of the show. So all that's left to say is thank you to Lee Fletcher, Robert Frank and Ewan Williams for the interviews. And as I said earlier, those are the last of our National Astronomy Meeting interviews. At last, we got good really? mileage out of that. <laughs> it was really great. So thanks again to Robert Massey and everyone at the Royal Astronomical Society and the National Astronomy Meeting for letting us be press and all of that because it was awesome.
3: The editors were Jen Gupta, Libby Jones, Kat McGuire and Matt
0: Perver.
1: And the producer was Jen Gupta. Yay! <laughs> you can do that every time yeah. <laughs> you say you're the producer. I love being now. the
0: producer. So until next time, Jod on. Bye. Bye. Bye.